What's up, boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm good. I'm, I'm kind of enjoying my, my non-Lodo March. Uh, oh, yeah. It, the first few days of March are a total treat. Did you, did you rush out and make any purchases in the first few days? Yes. We bought um, doggy poop bags and bird seed. And uh, I'm trying to remember. There were a couple of like, I think we can just put that off, put that off. Okay, now it's time to go. Yeah, we, uh, I'm trying to think dog food. We were down to like scraping the, the bottom of the container. Yes. Um, but you know uh, how they say not, n- no cereal filler. You, you were at the place where you were giving the dog cereal filler. Yeah. Just cereal. Yeah. Um, grape but, nuts. Nobody will eat this grape nuts. You eat it, dog. <laughs> uh, I got my hair cut on day one. And I bought I bought a BB gun to kill the woodpeckers that are trying to eat my house. Oh, the woodpeckers are 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 coming into your home. No, they're not coming in, but they're pecking different parts of it. Holes into your home. Yeah. I had this happen once before at my old house. Wow. I had to patch a woodpecker hole. And I just I don't I, I, I don't tolerate it anymore. You're gonna Good die. For you. If you're pecking a hole in my house, you're gonna die. Good for you. I support that. If I can go here, because I'm pretty eager to go to the volume of stuff that you've got in this first topic that's in the critical skills of finance, do, do we want to wade into those waters right now? I think so. And I'm trying to think of how exactly you pronounce the series title here, because in, in, on paper, it's critical skills but the s in skills is a dollar sign Uh um so how would you pronounce that word i would say skills ching okay i was thinking it was more like skizzles or some sort of like hip-hop culture where we can hear the grill on your front teeth yeah i should have worn a platinum grill for those who don't watch us on youtube maybe maybe i'll have on and some some precious metals in my teeth well you could wear your ridiculous hat with the flat brim and you're halfway there as far as i'm concerned that's all my hats steve oh okay um okay we yes we should jump into it i i I feel like we're doing a disservice to the crew by not recapping our snowmino real that we just finished at all but um I guess we'll save that for another day. We just we just had an adventure through northern Michigan on snowmobiles, and uh, it was a great way to celebrate 50 years of your your being alive. Uh, Truly, but I'll just tease that for a future future okay. date. You can hear about the conversation that I had with another grown man about whether we were going to die that night. Um, with yeah, no- that's right. Well, um, I will say that we. Uh, you might have heard it if you were here a couple weeks ago. Uh, you gave us a 30,000-foot view of the critical skills of finance, going over the seven critical skills that everybody has to have 
if you are going to be a biblical boss and rule over your money in a biblical way. And so now we're now we're doing the deep dives. We're going step by step. And the very first skill that ha- that must be mastered by someone who wants to become an Abrahamic biblical money running boss is the skill of acquisition. That is yeah. coming by dollars to rule over. You cannot manage wealth if you don't have any. You can't. Oh, that's a great point. You can't steward a dollar if you're not aware of how to get your hands on a dollar. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that's what we're going to cover. Number one. Okay. Can I start? Can I start with the scriptures? Cause I believe I you they're, were. they're true. Start to finish. That's a good foundation. Um, Genesis two fifteen. the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, there's a connection to how we are made, what we are made for, and work. Um, later, it's connected to food, um, that that your your food would be gotten by your work. And really, that's what we're talking about today, is your work, and I'm going to make this argument as we go, uh, produces uh, wealth. And that can be wealth for you and others, and it can be dollars if you're working in the united states it can be other assets etc but it could be lira if you're in italy it could be lira i don't think it could i think it would be euros in that case shoot well i miss lira it could be shekels if you're in yerushalayim really there's still a shekel could you, you yeah they get... still use shekels okay let me make it a, let me make it a side uh, note because you're going to be hyping the value of work and, and you said we're made for it. Um, you referenced second uh, Thessalonians three ten. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. If you're eating food and it didn't come as a result of your work, you're in a dangerous spot. I would say you're, you're acting outside of biblical norms. And by the way, that verse says, if who will not work? If a man will not work. If a man will not work. So if you are 11 years old and you're eating uh, food thanks to dad's efforts, that's no problem because you're not a man. But if you are 20 years old and you're eating food that came from dad's work and you're not working, that's a problem. What if you're eating, what if you're 35 and you're eating food that came from Uncle Joe Biden's distribution checks uh, and you're not working? That is an American reality. That is not a kingdom reality. So you would be operating outside of biblical norms, which is a great application of of why I, I point that out. Because as you say, the acquisition of money and the eating of food, they are connected in in God's heart. And this is not, I I start here because this is not what our culture says about work. Our culture says that work is generally bad. It's not what we're made for. It's what we have to do. Um, And that if we could all just have enough money to, to feed ourselves and not work at all, that we would all be happier and better. Um, you probably 
if you listen to a bunch of podcasts, you've heard people talk about universal basic income and the idea that think how much better America would be if we just provided enough income to cover the basics like food and shelter for everybody, regardless of, of what they did. Um, and those are those are not in line with with how we're created. So we're created to work and we're created to earn when we here, work. Here. Um, so how do we do it? I'm going to read you a couple of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. We did a whole series on this one. Um, but it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So this tells us, this proverb has a bunch of wisdom in it. One of the things, though, is that She's a she's a hard worker. When we look at the ant, the I don't know. I should have Googled this. Ants can lift a lot more than than their body weight and two hundred times, I believe. Two hundred times. Yep. Um, I think you could say this is a Proverbs thirty one ant. Yeah, she's she's a she's no slouch, but um, there's also a, a thing in here that there's seasons to her work. There's seasons of accumulation summer where she's preparing her bread i don't know that ants naturally eat bread in the wild (laughs) it's not normal but so i think we can we can assume that the uh the sage writing the proverb here is giving us more of a illustration than a biology lesson but right um there's a time for preparation and storing up and then there's a time for harvest and gathering Ah. So we should be saving, we should be working to create the thing that we can save, and there's absolutely a time to harvest and gather. Um, So there's seasons to our earning, uh, is what I'll say about that proverb. Um, And Proverbs 13.11 is another one. You can't have listened to this podcast for more than a few months without hearing this one. It says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. so the biblical way of, of accumulation or acquisition of, of wealth is slow. Um, that is a principle that we can take. And I'm going to just sidebar and say that here in America um, and in the West, let's just say in the West, because we, we got an email from an Australian listener this week, which was delightful. So um, I know there's people listening who aren't Americans, uh, but... We love to take whatever fill in the blank gotten hastily and we don't we don't shame it. We don't say that's not worth as much. We actually glorify it. Um so I I'll never forget sitting in the pews at the mega church Baptist place I went to as a kid and they announced surprise announcement the pastor that week was none other than Neon Dion Sanders who had gotten born again like two weeks before. (laughs) And now he was going to be preaching to 30,000 people in Dallas, Texas. Um, And uh, spoiler alert, that's not wise. Uh, You know, there's, there's a, you and I were talking about elders last week, that there's an age component to wisdom that needs to build slowly and over time. Um, And that's the same with wealth. I mean, we we love the story of a blow-up success in business. Oh, yes. Um, And we don't... Tell me if you've heard of anyone. These people actually, I would say, are vilified 
uh, not made heroes of, but the Bible makes heroes of those who would build wealth over generations. They are the normative ones, biblically speaking. Right. So that could be that, hey, my great-great-grandpa and my great-grandpa and my grandpa, they each worked normal old jobs and they saved. And now our family always has at least a million dollars that goes to each kid when when parents die. Yeah. Um, those people are thought of as dirty. And yeah. the Bible says that's how wealth gets built. Anything yeah. else, you know... Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, these guys, that's not the norm and it's not even necessarily good. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I'll tell you what you have never seen at your local church. You have never seen a 65 year old guy and his 87 year old father who walk up on stage and they say, we want to hype these guys because together they took a family from zero to being um, multimillionaires. This 87-year-old grew up on a prairie in a shack, and they are now um, retired into wonderful homes, and now their children have a baseline that they're starting from that has no financial worry connected to it. And aren't we proud of them? Let's give them a hand. Uh, what they do is try to get uh, whoever's on the reality TV in flash in the pan. And they want to cheerlead the people who, as you say, have had quick successes. And I just, I'm reiterating what you've already said, but I, we just have to see that what is in pop Christianity's norm in their wheelhouse is not what's in the Bible's norm. And we have to be people who will cheerlead the biblical way to wealth and not the pop culture way to wealth. That's right. Um, so wealth acquisition biblically happens slowly. slowly. It's connected to work. Um, and there's seasons in, in how it's done. So those are some good kind of foundation blocks that I want to lay. And then I want to talk about what this looks like for most of the guys that are listening. Um, for most of you, this means that there will be phases. Now, I'm going to talk mostly to the guy who's like a first-gen wealth builder, which doesn't mean you came from poverty. It could mean you just had a normal American upbringing where your parents kind of said, all right, you're on your own now, and maybe there'll be inheritance someday when I die, but uh, for the most part, you're financially on your own. We don't have a multi-generational money vision in the family. And so you're kind of left to say, okay, I've got to think about how I'm going to acquire wealth. And phase one for most people is, we've talked about this a ton, to go get a job. Um, and I know for some of our listeners, if you're hearing this and you haven't been around here long, you're going to think this sounds crazy. But for some of our listeners, that's kind of like, oh, a job is not what Abrahamic family leaders do. They go start yeah. businesses and they acquire income producing assets. They don't work work a job to make somebody else's family rich. Um, but we've done a whole episodes on, on having a job. Um, I think we tend to... to um, forget that this is just critical for most people when they're starting out. When you're right out of college or even right out of high school, whenever you're going to enter the workforce, most of the time in order to get what you need 
to be equipped to eventually do other things, you have to to work a job. Do you agree with that, Stephen? Yep. Okay. So um, when you're in this phase, I have a few tips. Number one uh, is I think we tend to over-index on things like pay early on in the process. So I went to school at an Ivy League school where the investment banks came to campus and towards the the end of your junior year, they would start interviewing people and they would pick the smartest kids. Spoiler alert, I did not get picked for this uh, right off the bat, but they would pick the the shining stars and give them these jobs that paid $150,000 right out of college. And (laughs) I back then thought, the coolest thing about that is that these kids have a huge salary. What, what a bunch of success. Um, what I didn't realize is that what they actually were getting was a whole bunch of skills and they were going to learn to just grind and work hard and um, be exposed to high-level executives at a much earlier point in their careers than most people would if they were to start several rungs down the ladder. Um, but I was impressed by the salary. I think that's the norm in our culture is you go, wow, that person got a job that pays a whole lot of money. Right. I don't think that's the main value of a job when you're in this first phase, which is I'm new, new to the workforce and I'm trying to go out there and get what I can. Um, so I would say when you're in your age 16 to 28 bracket, and this will vary depending on each person, but Don't think about salary as the main goal. Think about where can I collect skills that will pay me for the long haul. Um, That doesn't mean that you get to go pretend that you have a job because you write a blog in your basement and make $10 a week if you have a family to feed. I'm not saying that. I'm saying go find a job that will pay for your needs, but don't over-index on maxing out the money if there's other things you can do that are going to equip you for the long haul. So some of those skills that you can get from a a job in this phase could be how to run a business. You could go work for a a business and try to bump into the, to the owner or whoever's running it. Um, Somebody told me this early in my career and said, you need to make sure you're owning a P and L statement by the time you're 30. Um, So I was aggressively trying to get into a role where I was going to be in charge of a profit and loss statement where I was the one who would be on the hook for how much did we make and how much did we spend. Um, I think I said this earlier, how to work your tail off is a skill you can get um, when you're 22 at a job that you probably don't want to go out and try to get when you're 35 and hopefully have a few kids. Um, so there's there's actually something to learning how to just work really hard that's frankly it's hard to develop that later in your life Um, but it's it's a great time when you're young and uh, have less commitments to things like children and wives to to learn that skill um i'm not suggesting multiple wives just one wife yeah yeah multiple guys listening um i'll just throw in there that if you have an eye to collecting skills and knowing that exposure is a is a superpower, getting exposure, then you could make that one of the conditions of your work. If you're bringing to, let's say you're going to mow lawns and you know a guy that's got a successful landscaping business and you say, I 
I am willing to mow lawns for you. Here's my, here's my thing. One hour a week, I want you to review how the business works to me because I want to understand. I want you to talk me through your PL. I want you to talk me through the decisions you're making as a business leader. And the rest of the week, I'll mow lawns for you. If you have an eye to de- developing skills, you can make that a condition of your work. And you can go to places where you can uh, assemble a, a great collection of skills. We, the last time we talked about this, we mentioned there's no um, there's no shame in getting an hourly um, job as a cashier. I would recommend that you did that at uh, Chick Fil A over McDonald's. Why? Because they're going to actually teach you um, how to deal with customers. They're going to deal, they're going to teach you how to do a little bit of salesmanship. Those things will pay off, as you say, for the rest of your life. So if you, if again, we're not talking about getting a, a, a managing job that's 100K a year, although great, do that. I'm saying all the way down to the most basic jobs, lifeguarding. You could say, I'm going to do this job if you'll give me the following uh, access. I'd like to talk to somebody in management. I want to understand a bigger picture of how this business works. And that's just a really smart way to move through life with any role. And I would even say you can do that even if you find yourself. Like you're listening to this and you're going, well, I already have a job and I need to keep it right now. You can still be a collector of skills wherever you find yourself. I I remember working in a restaurant at 18 and I thought I can either just goof off with the servers when I'm not busy or I can go in the back and I, I just told the cooks, I was like, I'd love to learn how to cook. That's a skill I don't have that I would like for my life. And these guys were so excited Oh yeah. Show me how to do things that I still use every week now. And so that's not a skill that necessarily has led to me acquiring more wealth, but it definitely has made my life better. That's great. Um, so other things you can acquire in this phase, specific skills. So you could say, I want to learn accounting or plumbing or HVAC repair or marketing or sales, um, that you want to build. So, those, those are great things to go after and say, I'm going to go take a job where I have to sell for a year. Um, that will help you no matter what you do if you have an yes. eye towards business ownership someday. Um, and it's okay to be a specialist. So I'm not saying you can't follow an Abrahamic path if you're a doctor or a dentist or something, but your path is going to look different. And I think you should just think pretty hard before going down those paths where kind of once you're in, this is it for you. Um, because, um, it's going to be a different road. Uh, Jeremy Pryor likes to say that the world thinks in terms of careers and we think in terms of assets. So we're not necessarily saying, think about how to build the best career possible in this line. We're thinking, how do we build assets, which can be businesses. They can be things that we're going to purchase, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, okay. So there can be several phases within this job phase. The, the one we just talked about mostly was the one where you're primarily after skills. Um, I think it's worth saying, I don't think it's impossible that you can go old school Detroit and be a great family leader while working the line from age 19 till 65. 
but I think that's less and less normative right now in the USA. Um, and, um, yeah, this, this path produces what we're going after as families who want to steward multi-generational wealth. Um, and that's a little harder to, um, to do when you're in kind of one of these jobs that might've worked really well in 1950. Um, that being said, if that's you and you're like, two years from retirement on a pension path job, I'm not telling you to quit. So don't hear that from me. Um, But instead, most of you guys who are listening to this will have a job where you kind of move through the I'm here to get skills phase into the now I'm growing in my responsibility. I'm managing people. They're asking more and more of me. And this is a crucial moment for you uh, to decide. Does it still make sense for me to work to make someone else's family rich, which is what you're doing as an employee? Or should I be moving on to phase two, which is business ownership? Um, And if you're going to stay, I would just suggest you have to look for a few things. You're going to start to want material participation in the success of the business. Mm. So if you're sticking around as an employee, that's fine. But you should eventually want to get paid when you bring in extra value beyond the salary that, that is getting paid to you. Um, and this can be all sorts of ways. This could be stock compensation, bonuses, equity in a private business. There's a lot of ways that can happen. But um, at some point, and I don't get antsy with this and work at a job for a year and then go to the owner like, hey, I'd like to have half your business. Um, don't be silly. Uh, but I think that's that's something that's worth considering as you're moving into this next phase. Um, other thing that can be really important to ask yourself is, are there networks in this job that I can take with me when I leave? So, um, you know, be careful here because you don't want to steal for your employ from your employer. But if you're a consultant for a big company at age 35, I'd be thinking, am I creating clients that I'm going to be able to take with me when I go out on my own? Um, and if the answer is no, I'd probably be an employee for less time. But if the answer is yes, then maybe my job is really powering the next phase. Um, so networks, material participation in the success of the business. And then asking the question, am I in a role where my skills are worth so much to an employer that I can create um, a lifestyle similar to what I'd have if I was a successful entrepreneur? Um, and I'll say this is not the norm. It's weird. Um, so it's, it's not likely that many people find themselves here. Normally your job wants the most time from you precisely at the time when you're most needed at home as a father. Um, but if you found a gig where they're like, yeah, you have flexibility, you can integrate your family into your work life and, you know, we're also going to pay you well and provide benefits and all that. Don't feel like, uh, you have to leave just because it's officially a job. I'll say it's easy to get stuck in this phase and just kind of get swept down the river and you wake up and you're a middle manager or even in senior management and you feel like you can't leave because you make so much money that it's daunting to think about switching. Uh, so be be wary of that. And I just, you know, the masculinist Aaron Wren? Of course. He, he's been on the Abraham's Wallet podcast. And, of course. Uh, 
he just wrote an article that was about how difficult it is to switch careers later in life. Um, and that even when you can do it, you tend to be stuck making moves to adjacent fields. So like if you're an engineer, you could switch to consulting, but you might have to go get an MBA. Um, and even then you're probably still going to be consulting on engineering topics. Um, whereas you're going to have a very hard time going, I think my calling is advertising when you've been engineering for the last 20 years. Um, I agree with this as somebody who has switched careers. Um, and it's why I recommend using the job phase to acquire those key skills that any business owner would love to have, um, because it does allow you a lot more pivot points. So if you're like, I've done some sales, some marketing and some finance, you're going to have a lot of options when it comes time to pivot, uh, versus if you say, I'm an expert in, uh, drug chemistry formulations, uh, you know, then it's like, well, you pretty much stuck. Um, a couple other things before we move on to phase two, which is the non-job phase. Um, there are some assets that are much easier to acquire when you are in this job or employee phase, um, at least until you've built up a bunch of wealth. One is homes. I talk to people pretty regularly in, in my financial planning life who just started a business and they're killing it. They're doing great. Uh, but they're like, I, I also want to buy a house and I can't because nobody will consider the income I'm making uh, from my business for like two years. So keep in mind that any debt financed asset um, is going to be harder to come by when you're an entrepreneur than it is when you have W-2 income because lenders just think, well, the W-2, there's salary, that's more reliable. Um, Liquid financial assets can be easier to build. So think about things like employer matches on your 401k, stock compensation like there's just there's things that you really get as benefits of being being an employee at some companies that you don't get when you're in the entrepreneur phase um insurance i think you and i have both shopped insurance and known that it ain't cheap when you are buying it as a small business owner fact and children it's easier to buy children when you have a job um not really. I I just I was talking to somebody who told me that they had a one year paternity leave from a large tech company. Unbelievable. And I thought, well, you'd be kind of crazy not to bust out three kids in the next three years. Yeah, that's so right. Go for it, <laughs> because um, I know that may not be the norm, but some companies will offer like adoption credits. This is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but. Um, and it probably generally falls into the maximize your workplace benefits guidance we've talked about. Um, but sometimes having a job is really helpful in that early, we're having little kids phase of life. I think we've got a good grid on the advantages, the opportunities of the job phase. But Mark, what's after the job phase? I'm going to just blatantly rip off one of our friends who I've already mentioned in this podcast, uh, Jeremy Pryor. You can absolutely think multi-generationally about wealth building if you stay in that job phase and leverage it the right way. But I think these, these three phases of business are going to be really helpful to some of you. Um, number one is the freedom biz. So this is the business that you would create that gives you control over your time. It allows you to be 
you know, effectively your own boss. And a, a lot of what you and I have both done, Steve, is is probably categorized in freedom business where we are able to say, hey, I'm going to go to a kid's basketball game today. And so right. I don't or, or I want to work from a different location for three weeks with my family. I, I think that having control of your schedule and being able to be present as a father, um, you can have a big impact when your kids are kind of in that 10 to 20 or 10 to 18 age range that is harder to have when your kid is in the zero to one year old range. Fair. And when you say uh, flexibility or having control of your schedule, do you mean not working? No, absolutely not. I mean, this is often... So I'll just tell you how this often looks. You're working at Procter & Gamble. We'll pick on your your Cincinnati homies and your uh, marketing expert. And you're selling... Uh, what do they make? What's a fun... Pampers. One? You're selling Pampers. Um, you know, you have developed a certain level of cachet at a big company. It's an impressive resume item where you might go, you know, I, I don't see myself going out and starting a business from scratch that employs a ton of people right now, but I really would like to not have to rush into the office every time my boss snaps their fingers. So your freedom business could just be, I'm going to consult on marketing with consumer packaged good brands. And I've developed enough, going back to that phase one, I've developed a network of contacts and a, some very marketable skills. So my freedom business is just doing the same thing I was already doing, but I'm on my own behalf now. And if I yeah. want to work from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. and then a little more from 10 to midnight, I can do that if I'm in a busy phase. Um, you know, a lot of times people get paralyzed because they think, I can't think of a business idea. And usually I just go, just do what you're already doing, but work for yourself. Yeah. That's what we've seen with our buddy, uh, Jeff. He, he's talked about it at length on the Abe's wallet podcast. He was doing something very well for a big company and he was making them a lot of profits and realized I could do this for myself and, and enjoy. I could even bring the cost to the customer down and enjoy more profits for myself. And that's just what he did. And it's gone pretty, pretty, pretty good. That's right. Um, so the freedom business often doesn't scale. Um, so to use your example of Jeff, he has only so many hours he can sell at an hourly rate to somebody. It's often adjacent to what you do. Um, and for some people especially if it's really lucrative, that's enough to, to have full control of your time and build wealth and sure. use it to get to phase three. Phase, the, the second business stage is optional, I'll say. Not everybody has to do this, but it's called the scale business. And this is where you think of businesses that can scale way beyond selling your time one-to-one. -one. So think about... Um, you know, even as you and I talk about our business, advising families on their money, a freedom style financial planning business might be one person working with individual families. And there's a really fixed limit to how many people they can work with, but they can have a great income and a good, good quality of life doing that. But a scale business could be in the same exact field and just right. say, I'm going to hire 10 planners and I'm going to 
invest my time in coaching those people so that I scale. Right. Um, if I may, if I might uh, float out an advertisement here, um, we faced this um, with my wife's business. She was a wedding planner and an event planner, and she we we realized in very very short order there was only so much that she could actually do herself. And so she had to change uh, roles and, if you will, change businesses and stop being an event planner. And she had to hire event planners and start running a business that was of event planners. And a great book that walks through some of these uh, challenges is called The E-Myth. And E E stands for entrepreneur. And their little picture is, you know, Susie loves making pies. And if she wants to have a pie business, she she can't love making pies more than she loves running a pie business. And those are two different things. So when you think of scale, you think of going from a one-man show to running a business. Yes. So the scale business, like I said, it's optional. You should think about these as businesses that tend to be very valuable if they're successful and they can sell for a lot of money because you know, a one-to-one business doesn't sell for much at all, if anything, because it's basically just you. Whereas the scale business, you can grow it and it has value as a business. Somebody will will pay a hefty multiple for that. It's great to have partners in a scale business. You can have partners in your freedom business. Often you won't. Um, but with a scale business, it's great to bring in partners because you're really trying to ramp something up uh, and grow it. And then the last one is the legacy business. And I'm kind of calling this a business in quotes because what we're really talking about is the assets that you would plan to pass down to future generations, work with family. Um, A lot of people that have a successful scale business get this one wrong because they assume, hey, uh, you know, we make the best carburetors in America and our kids are going to want to make these carburetors too. And then they're running their business and they're growing it and it's a multinational company. And then they look up and their kids are 40 and they go, we're not interested in your carburetor business. And you don't have an asset that you have actually worked alongside family with. So it's not actually multi-generational. The best thing that your kids hope you do is sell that business and give them the money. (laughs) Um, Whereas a, a, a legacy business... Um, it's designed to be a family team effort. Um, Jeremy talks about this one and he says his favorite legacy business is real estate assets. Because if you have a portfolio of, of real estate assets, there's, it doesn't matter if you're interested in marketing, if you're interested in, uh, manual work and HVAC repair, if you're interested in the legal side, there's something for everyone to pitch in on and participate when you're talking about real estate assets. Um, I would say this really could be any asset, but what you want to think of is uh, a dental practice is a terrible legacy business because (laughs) the odds that you're going to have a bunch of dentists uh, in in your family line, pretty low. Could happen, I guess, but pretty low. Um, And what your goal is here is no partners outside the family because this is where you start thinking, I'm trying to work with my children to transition from dad goes and works on these businesses outside the home to 
this is something our family is doing that everybody's going to participate in and it needs to be flexible enough so that I have a kid that gets called to a different city for a while. Um, we don't want to have to sell the legacy business and liquidate it all just to make that work. Um, so it should be something that can produce either uh, jobs and, and work for somebody who's in town or could potentially be managed by someone else if, if the family wanted to, to do something else for a while. So um, questions about legacy business? Would you say that the most famous and long-standing example of legacy business is family land. Yeah, and this is where I love raw. I, we aren't an agricultural society, but um, you know that I think about inheritance a lot. And if you're a young Israeli boy and you get to the point of receiving an inheritance, that word doesn't even mean anything similar to you than what it means to your average American. Uh, we think inheritance equals money. You're going to give me money, money and I can take it to that day to the store and I can buy stuff. Um, land is, honestly, it's worthless unless you work it. So to the, the Israelite who has got a parcel of land and it doesn't want to work, it sits there and it does nothing for them. Right. But if they are willing to work, it can produce food, it can produce wealth, all sorts of things. And that's an ideal marker of a legacy business is you want it to require some participation and effort from future generations because that, that allows you to kind of build identity into it, that this is our asset as our family. There are some things I think that you need to develop in this area of acquisition Uh once you move into the asset building phase, which is what business ownership is all about. So by the time you get to the point where you're like, I'm ready to even go to phase freedom business, uh, you, I think you should have some of these skills. Uh, the first one is how to analyze an investment. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about investing when we get to the multiplication step of critical skills of money. But on some level, it's a key part of the acquisition phase as well. So if you're if you're not the first generation wealth builder, if this is something that you've you've actually received uh, assets from previous generations, you might actually be managing assets as your primary means of work. Now, um, you know you're managing the family business or operating real estate, um, but you need to be able, whether that's you now or that's what you're trying to build, you need to be able to analyze an investment. So do you know how to look at a piece of real estate or a piece of equipment or land or a financial asset and say, this seems good? Doesn't mean you have to do that alone or without advice. That's certainly not the case, but you shouldn't be a total dum-dum when it comes to, well, I have no idea how to even start thinking about whether that would be a good asset to add to to the family mix. Um, I'm just going to say this one. We're not going to teach it on this episode, but you can look it up and we might teach it in the future. But discounted cash flows are important. So this is a way to value future streams of money. Um, and I was talking to somebody just the other day about buying a business that was basically offering them a temporary series of cash flows um, and then it was worthless. And they didn't understand the difference in that in something like a rental property. 
that produces cash flows and has an appreciating asset underneath it. Right. And so that doesn't mean that it's bad to go spend money on a series of cash flows, but they have to be way, way bigger than a series of cash flows that also ends up with a, an appreciating asset underneath them. So you need to know or or at least know how to tap appropriate help in figuring out what is a what is a stream of cash flows worth? That's that's basically what investment analysis is. Whether we're talking stocks or real estate or um, businesses, that's great. Um, and then the last piece of of knowing how to uh, analyze an investment, I think, is understanding risk. Um, and the most common example I see of this in my day to day work is people who come to me with basically a, an angel investing opportunity. Hey, my cousin is starting this awesome business and he has offered me the opportunity to put $10,000 into his business venture. Um, and what we talk about when that happens is, do we understand the risk appropriately? And I always tell people, think like a VC when you're in that situation. Like a venture capital fund is totally cool with that type of investment, but they do it over and over and over, knowing that seven out of 10 times they get $0 back. Yep. Two out of 10 times they get their 10 grand back or their 10 million in, in their case. And one out of 10 times they hit a home run that makes it worth it for the whole deal. Um, so, uh, needing to understand risk, uh, is important. And I don't care if you're buying, like I said, any of the types of assets we talked about. Um, here's one where Steven, you're going to, you're going to have some things to chime in, but oh. the, the next critical sort of piece of things you should develop before you get to the asset building phase is how to teach and disciple acquisition in your family. So you and I are both building entrepreneurial families and we pour gasoline on any sparks we see in our children uh, that shows that they're eager to, to practice the skill of acquisition. Um, so when I see a little entrepreneurial uh, twinkle in the eye of one of my kids, it gets me excited. And I use some, I use some things to encourage that. And I know you do the same. Yeah, my my favorite example of this is yours, actually. So I'll steal one of your examples, which is your oldest daughter has um you you guys plunk down some cash for a pedigreed dog. And uh they don't give those away typically. Um this is a this is an asset. This dog, people usually think of their dogs as financial assets. But your deal with your oldest daughter was if you want to use the, the dog asset um, to create puppies that you take care of, then and, and then obviously there's a multiple th that money multiplies as you sell these pedigree dogs. You said, if you want to put the work in, we have this family asset that you can use, we, we will farm it out to you for the gestation period and you can make money off of this dog. And I just think that is a terrific example because um, it's going to bring joy into the house. It's going to be all of this fun and it's also going to create a lot of work and it is going to have a big financial return 
that's multiples over the 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 dollar value of the original dog. I know that's it's weird to talk to your dog in terms of uh, financial asset, but I love how you are willing to um, give your child a financial leg up because it's not really about making the money. It's really about uh, exercising that muscle that says I can take something, I can multiply it. It's going to take some work, some sweat equity on my end. But if she then wanted to take that and multiply it times 10, she could do that too. Um, but what she'll really be learning is, is that I can take something, you can buy a lawnmower. There's a kid on my street who he, he bought a lawnmower and then he has worked his tail off to multiply that lawnmower into a whole bunch more money than it cost him to buy the lawnmower. And that's the kind of thing that we want to, to build into our children. Yeah. And it teaches even conversations around the puppy thing. We taught risk. I said, there is a chance that you spend money. It's like $500 to pay for a boy dog to come around the house at the right time. And (laughs) you know, there's veterinary bills. And I said, there's a chance that you spend all this money and half the puppies get sick and die. That happens sometimes. And you lose money on this deal that could happen. Um, and so I said, you got to be comfortable with that and understand the risk in, in what you're doing here. Um, so it teaches a lot of those things we just talked about as being important. Um, the other thing I wanted to say on this one is just, I call it the marshmallow test. Have you seen that? We've talked about it way back in the day on the podcast, but they, they gave these kids, uh, a marshmallow and set it on the table. This was like a, an experiment at a university psychology program. And then they had cameras in the room and they said, we're going to leave the room and you are welcome to eat this marshmallow, all yours, no punishment. It's totally fine. But if it's still there, when we come back in five minutes, then we're going to give you a second marshmallow. And they did that test. They recorded the results. And then they followed up with these kids 20 years later. And the, the ones who could delay gratification, it was like an uncanny marker of lifetime success. And so, um, I think when we when we think about discipling kids who can be good stewards of wealth, uh, the ability to delay gratification, uh, you know, and other things too, like just the ability to work hard, the ability to to have excellence in their work, and not be like, well, this isn't great, but it's good enough, so I'm just gonna hand this in. Um, those are all way more important than. I'm the kid on the block who runs the the meanest lemonade stand and just like uh, gets out there and um, likes to do businessy things. The, like, yes, those are those are the underlying skills that I think really we want to train into our kids, and you can you can train that. Yes, that's right. Okay, last thing uh, that I've got on the skill of acquisition is the idea of balance and knowing when to push and when not to. Um, when I was when I was young in my job life, uh, work life, uh, work-life balance was a real buzzword. So oh, in, yeah. interviewing, you'd always hear some HR person tell you about the great work-life balance at this company. Um, and 
I I think that the the real skill here is knowing how to properly throttle the work levels at various times, um, based on kind of what's going on in in your acquisition kind of journey. Um, Sabbath is a great tool for this. I, I mean, creating a week in which you live rhythmically and you say, no matter what, I'm not going to run to the red line seven days a week. Um, that trains you in being able to say no sometimes. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say most youthful, say 20 somethings that I run across, their problem isn't that they, uh, they are too good at resting and (laughs) too good at, um, you know, low intensity. It's that they often don't know how to put their nose down and grind. Uh, and you know, the example I'm trying with very, very limited success right now to teach my seventh grader what to do when she sees a loose ball on the basketball court. Like she really likes playing basketball and there's these loose balls and you just kind of see girls like kind of jog mm-hmm. over to maybe like, that is your moment to have a free extra possession. You shouldn't play like this all the time, but, but when a loose basketball is bouncing across the floor, you do anything to get it. You lose your mind to go get that thing. And um, if you did that for 42 minutes of a basketball game, you'd be burnt out in five minutes. Yeah. But for 15 seconds, now is the time. Um, and I, I think we can translate that into entrepreneurship. Like you'd fail as an entrepreneur if you think you can work 20 hours a week or side hustle your way into a successful business in most cases. That just isn't true. Now there's certainly weeks where you can work 20 hours, but there's also weeks where you're probably going to have to work 80 to make it happen. Um, and on the other side, you'd fail as a father if you don't know how to ever turn it off. Um, and to say, I'm sorry, I won't be pursuing that that loose ball in the business world here because there's something more important. So you have to learn to be strategic with balance and know when to use your limited reserves of like turbo booster. Um, and that's true in work and it's true in the pursuit of wealth. Well, I'll bring this back to something you said right at the very beginning about seasons there are seasons, and you were referring to, uh, I believe, the life in your lifetime, there are seasons. So God has built in seasons all over the place for us. So he wants us to have seasons on a daily basis. We have seasons of rest, that is sleep. We have seasons um, in our day, in one day, where we're working hard. We have downtime in our day. You can extrapolate that to a week. There are seasons in that week. There, The scripture says that six days of the week are for work, and one day of the week is for rest. So there's seasons in a week. We can see that there are seasons in a month. Um, that's, how the, that's how the tides work. That's how the moon works. There's a month. There's a season. There's a seasonality to a month. So in a month, you might have busier weeks than others. It's definitely true that in a, over a year, there are seasons. There, there are seasons of rest that God actually commanded his people. You're going to rest during this time. We, we, the modern version of that stuff would be like vacations, Christmas break, um, spring break with your family. We have these seasons 
annually. And of course, as you're getting back to what you were originally saying, there are seasons over a lifetime of work. And if you want to have a lifetime of work, which we do, we want to be in the acquisition business. Yay, verily, if we're in our 80s, we want to be thinking, how do we acquire what you're talking about, these these uh, that third business? How can the things that I acquire be passed on to my children and to my children's children? If we want to be doing acquisition faithfully over a lifetime, we have to honor our design and that we were made for seasons. So I just bring that back to your your initial yeah, I, idea. I was looking at Twitter uh, today and somebody, one of these money Twitter people posted a graphic that was like a guy pushing a bike up a hill and it said Monday, Tuesday, when he's like lit, struggling up the hill and each day had him sweating. And then Friday and Saturday, he was coasting down the hill in joy and it said like what a lame life like and his his point was i i think was like don't do a job you hate all week to have one day that you like which i guess that's fair enough but it may i think i wrote back and and got no traction on my response but humans are made to work in seven day rhythms with a day of rest true i don't know if you've heard about this but Cultures in other parts of the world have tried to break this and say, we're going to have a nine-day work week or we're going to have a four-day work week. And it has disastrous results. People commit suicide at higher rates when they mess with the seven-day rhythm. Um, It's just, it's bananas, but it's a, it's a feature of how we're built is that we're made to do, to work in seven-day rhythms. And so I like that. And I think, you know, the rhythmic nature of life is is you can't you, you can't get around that if you want to flourish yeah we you said this right at the top but acknowledging our design is always wise and if we go right back to the beginning there's so many things how family works how marriages work how our relationship with god works if we go back to the very beginning those crucial first chapters of genesis we see so much that gives us a lens by which we can understand our own lives. And God says right at the beginning in Genesis 2.15 that he took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so we want uh, everybody out there to be to, to master these critical skills of money. And acquisition is absolutely step one. As we progress in this series, we'll be talking about uh, building on that. What do you do after there's acquisition? How do we move on from there into uh, other higher level skills? And we'll be hitting that next time. Mark, we appreciate all of your uh, work in uh, generating this stuff. It's great stuff for us to think about and to implement in our lives. And uh, we'll see you next time with the second critical skill of money, which is oversight how to keep an eye yeah how to keep an eye on on the money that you've acquired managing your flocks everything that's there okay great we'll see you next time hey i want to throw a little spotlight on cleaner soaps and sundries they're a men's personal care brand run by a great guy ct who makes cleaner products and does a ton of good for vets along the way i had tacos with this special ops dude turned entrepreneur in Texas and new right away, this brand is something our listeners are going to love to support. I think you're going to dig the soaps and deodorants and pomades and beard oils, all made from 
totally natural based ingredients. I use them and I love them. So find all their great stuff at klenr.com. That's cleaner.com. And if you type in AW, you'll get an automatic 10% discount on whatever you find. So check them out.